This is Arcadia Cast, brought to you by Camp Arcadia on the shores of beautiful Lake Michigan. Here you get to listen in on the stimulating lectures of thoughtful and engaging Christian leaders from across the country, like extended TED Talks from a Christian perspective. Today's talk is from Gabe Casper, pastor of University Lutheran Chapel in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, Lord of all creation, the water of the earth, of the sky, you are here, you're present with us now. You're not just transcendent, but you're imminence. You dwell with your people. You tell us where two or three of us are gathered, there you are in the midst of us. And so God, may your spirit be with us this morning in these next few moments that you would teach us, that you would shape us to know you, to know the love and the joy that you offer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so last night I was uh, talking with my wife, which uh, is a good thing to do. And, um, and, uh, and she said to me, she's like, you know, Gabe, you've been, you've been talking about this, this holy fool thing all week. And she's like, you should really talk about camp. Like camp is kind of the epitome of holy foolishness, right? Like, you think about it, I don't know if you realize that, but uh, you took a week of your life, a week of your precious vacation time to stay in a room that doesn't even have a bathroom in it, right? <laughs> and then those of you that have small children uh, who spend all your time corralling them, getting them to places to be, you right now have moments where you could be alone and just doing whatever you wanted. And you're in this room. It's foolish. I'm glad you're here. Don't leave, okay? But it's amazing. It's amazing. Uh, or I think of the fact that a few moments after this, there will be some of you, grown men, grown women, who will compete for ribbons. I just want to tell you, you can buy them. Like, you can afford them. You have the money. You don't have to compete for them, all right? But you're going to, last night, I saw a group of grown adults pretend they were on an airplane and fake barf in bags. I saw it happen right here. I also saw Max dressed up in a hula skirt running around up here. My son played a harmonica with his nose. And you all cheered for him, right? Like this place, it's the epitome of holy foolishness. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Uh, one of my favorite practices here is that at the end of every meal, we close every meal with a prayer and a joke. And can I tell you, I worked here for four summers. That's intentional. It's intentional. There's no uh, chip leaves, no stone unturned in trying to cultivate the culture of this place. And the intentionality behind the prayer and the joke is it gets at the heartbeat of what this camp is about. That on the one hand, we want to see that God is in the midst of everything that we do here. That God is here. He is present. And on the other hand, it's camp. And so we can joke around. We can have some stupid, silly little joke that evokes joy and happiness three times a day. And it reminds us that, hey, maybe life doesn't have to be serious all the time. Maybe not all the time. So this is what I want to get at today. We're in this last morning of, of what it means to be a holy fool. And you'll maybe recall that we kind of defined the holy fool as having two aspects. Uh, the holy fool has outward eccentric behavior, but that's based on this inward spiritual reality or spiritual ideal. All right, so it's outward eccentric behavior with an inward religious or spiritual ideal. 
And so on day two, we looked at the idea of the, the, of the holy fool. We looked at the, the internal piece of this, this fool's spirituality. And then yesterday, we looked at the outward actions, these eccentric behaviors. We called them fool's habits. And so today, I want to put together the outward and the inward and hopefully land with what I call a fool's joy. A fool's joy. And here's why I think joy is so important and why I think it's also so foolish in our day and age. Uh, that we live in a time in which everything feels very, very serious, right? Very, very serious. And rightly so. There's a lot of serious stuff going on. Uh, there's, there's real problems that are coming to light. There's real concerns over our nation. There's real concerns over the global community and people that are in need and in crisis. There's real concerns over the fate of our planet as a whole. And in light of, of how many problems there are, I, I look at many of my Christian friends, and, and they're worried. And some of my Christian friends, uh, they look at the face of the world's problems, and they worry about Christianity being associated with some negative things. They worry about Christianity being associated with a, an unhealthy kind of nationalism, with white supremacy, with systemic injustice, and they worry about that. And guess what? They're not wrong. And I look at some of my Christian friends who in the face of the world's problems are worried. And they're worried about our rapidly secularizing culture. They're worried about this constant state of deconstruction that we seem to be in and the abandonment of orthodoxy in both beliefs and morals. And guess what? They're not wrong either. They're not wrong either. And so, so we've got to talk about these things. We've got these serious issues that matter that we have to work through. But what I want to submit today is this, is that the foolish hope we have as Christians, foolish hope we have as Christians, is that the victory's already won. That the story of the world has actually already been written, and we know the ending. And the ending is joy. And so I think one of the unique opportunities we have for witness in our age that is so bogged down by bad news is to actually be a people that live in light of the good news. The good news that in the end, everything is going to be okay. In an interview with a, a publication from the United Kingdom, again, the, uh, the comedian, the prophetic comedian, Bo Burnham, is helpful here. He writes these words, or he said these words. Uh, you'll see it on your sheet. The, the classic comedian says there's nothing that's taboo. If you laugh at one thing, you've got to laugh at everything. That comedy is taking people to dark areas and showing them the light. Now, I'm not totally sure I agree with him that nothing is taboo. All right. But the idea of taking people to dark areas and showing them the light through joy and through laughter, that's, that's our opportunity as Christians. So let me just give you an example of this uh, from my own life. So, one of the practices that I'm trying to cultivate in my life uh, is every Monday morning, uh, I get together with uh, two local area pastor friends, uh, and they're both kind of non-denami evangelical pastor guys. And, and so uh, we get breakfast uh, every Monday morning, and uh, we have this practice. It's perhaps a bit weird, uh, but this is kind of us trying to cultivate this fool spirituality where we get together, we have our pleasantries, and then we all just sit in the middle of this Coney Island and we close our eyes and we bow our heads and we just ask the Spirit to guide us and tell us what He wants us uh, to talk about. And all three of us that day got this, like, whatever you want to call it, this vibe from the Spirit saying, like, hey, you should talk uh, about grief. Talk about grief. Talk about what y'all are grieving. I was like, why would I talk about grief right now? 
And uh, so we do it, and, and I'm kind of like, ah, maybe it's this for me, maybe it's this for me. And then my buddy Kyle opens up, he's a pastor, and he's like, this one's for me. He's like, this is what I'm grieving right now. And what had happened at his church, he's a pastor at a very large church, and, and there's people that, that are leaving his church kind of in droves right now. And they're leaving it actually on account of lies that have been told about him. Uh, and this is not me just like defending my boy, like it's just their legit lies, and they're leaving the church. And, and he knows this, and it's been going on for a while. And he says, Gabe, I'm just trying to grieve well those relationships. I'm trying to grieve those things well. And I asked him, I said, so what does that look like for you to grieve well? What do you mean by that? And he said, and he gave me kind of the usual appropriate responses to grief. He says, you know, I'm praying about it. And then I'm talking to people I trust and care about, processing through it. He said, and I'm crying, and, and I'm letting out some anger. And he's like, he's working through uh, grief. I said, that's really good, man. And I said, hey, could I offer, if it's all right with you, could I offer just one one more thing that you might try doing as you're grieving. It says, you're kind of going through this hard season. He said, sure. And I said, see, when, when people would, would come to uh, my boy, Martin, to my boy, Martin Luther, uh, and they, they'd come to him with, uh, with some grief or with some pain or with some guilt, they'd come to him, they'd, they'd lay their burdens on him. Uh, and, you know, for Luther, everything's always the devil. And so he'd say, oh, well, you know, it sounds like, like the devil's getting you down. And so it could be. And so it's, Luther would then counsel them. And he'd say, all right, this is what you need to do. You're, you're bogged down by grief. You're, you're bogged down by pain. This is what you need to do. You need to get together with some friends. And you need to go to a bar. And you need to drink just like a little bit too much. Like, don't get stupid, you know, but, but just like drink a little bit too much. And Luther would say, and you know what? And you need to tell some jokes. You need to laugh. And maybe the jokes would be just a little bit crass. You know, nothing too bad. All right, but just a little bit crass. And so that's the advice I give to my evangelical pastor friend. <laughs> And he just stared at me and he goes, I got very different advice from my Baptist pastor friend. Uh, now, now joking aside, uh, Luther's counsel uh, maybe seems foolish, but it's actually pretty good because what's his point? His point was this, listen, the devil wants to crush your joy. The devil wants you to be miserable like he is. The devil wants you worrying and fretting over every little thing. And so Luther's saying, how do you beat that? Have fun. Be silly. Be stupid. Get a little loopy. Pursue joy. Be foolish. Like one of my favorite Luther quotes, he once wrote, I resist the devil, and often it is with a fart that I chase him away. <laughs> right? That's, that's profound father of the faith, right? This is the real theology, folks. But there's, there's, a, there's a foolish genius to that, right? Do you see that? Like, it's just like, it's so good. It's like, why else do we do that, right? It's, it's to chase the devil away, right? So, so there's this time in, uh, in Luther's life, actually, where, where he had to go do some work, and, and he was uh, a ways away from his uh, beloved wife, Katie, and it was towards the end of his life, and he was not doing well, and so she was very worried about him. And so she wrote him a letter about how worried she was uh, about him. I don't have it here for you. So it's really long. She wrote him a letter about how she was worried about him. Uh, and so Luther responded back to her letter. And let me read what he wrote to her. I thank you very much for your great worry, which robs you of sleep. Since the date you started to worry about me, the fire in my quarters right outside the door of my room tried to devour me. And yesterday, no doubt, because of the strength of your worries, a stone almost fell on my head and nearly squashed me as in a mousetrap. For in our secret chamber, the toilet, uh, mortar has been falling down for about two days. 
We called in some people who merely touched the stone with two fingers and it fell down. The stone was as big as a long pillow and as wide as a large hand. It intended to repay you for your holy worries. Had the dear angels not protected me. Says now I worry that if you do not stop worrying, the earth will finally swallow us up and all the elements will chase us. Is this the way you learn the catechism and the faith? He says this, this is a great line. It's my mom's favorite line. She always says it to me. Thanks, mom. Uh, pray and let God worry. Pray and let God worry. You have certainly not been commanded to worry about me or about yourself. Cast your burdens on the Lord and he will sustain you. And so you can see again that it's in this foolishness and it's in this joy and it's in this sort of sarcasm that Luther is, what's he doing? It's, it's again, it's profound. He's actually relativizing the perhaps legitimate cause for concern that his wife has. But he's relativizing it. He's saying, listen, I'm going to live my life in light of the ultimate. And so the penultimate's not going to crush me. I'm going to have joy in the face of whatever it is because I know the ending to the story. See, this is what joy does, that in the face of a world that doesn't seem to have a coherent account of itself right now, and life for us maybe becomes a lurch here and a lurch there, and we watch our news feed on our phones and we see a disaster here and an insoluble problem there, joy breaks into the midst of that and says, hey, I know the end of the story. And in the end, everything is going to be okay. And so we don't have to sweat everything always. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Let me pause real quick, though. Any questions, comments, before I press on? In case you missed a joke, th she has a friend who says, the things you worry about rarely ever happen, so therefore she worries about everything so that it never happens. That's good. That's good. That's awesome. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Anyone else? Questions, comments, hilarious jokes? Yes. Mm, that's good. That's good. Did you all hear that? She said, if we're not spending our time worrying about everything going on out there, we can really focus in on the things that are right in front of us, is summarizing it that way, if that's all right. Good. Yes. Yeah. That's good, yeah. And so, and to that point, I do want to clarify that, that, you know, when I bring up, so um, she talked, no, yeah, right, 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 no, no, but she talked about saying, hey, there's, there's a, di a difference between a joy that, like, Luther suggests this, like, hey, go out with your friends to a bar, and this, like, a true lasting joy, right, a true joy that's, like, deep and enduring, and you find it in, in, in really the good things, if it's in service and love to your neighbor, if it's in your family, it's these sorts of things, right, that, and, well, frankly, ultimately, it's in Christ and your identity in him and living into that, right, uh, and so that's true, right, and so what Luther's doing here is what I call anti-wisdom, right, so it's this thing that, again, it feel, it seems so foolish, and it's like, but there's a spark of truth to that, uh, but you're right, ultimately, it's got to be found in a much deeper truth and a much deeper place than that. Yes, Lynn? Yeah, so, so Lynn was talking about Luther, for those of you who maybe couldn't hear, uh, and she was saying, hey, yeah, you know, Luther had kind of the, the daily mundane things that would sometimes get him down, and so he'd then kind of reverse that by using those daily mundane things to lift him up because he knew he had the ultimate joy, the ultimate thing already taken care of. That's good, Lynn. Awesome. All right. Uh, yes, one more. Yeah. Well, good deal. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to press us on... Uh, so we're talking about joy, and, and what does that mean? What does it look like to embody a fool's joy? Uh, the first thing I think we need to recognize, though, is what is the enemy of joy? What's, what stands in the way of us kind of living in that? Uh, and for me, it boils down to really one thing with two expressions, uh, and the enemy is, is fear. The enemy of joy is always fear. Uh, and I think those two fears we, we see in our world manifested in two ways. Uh, one is fear that God isn't good fear that God isn't good, and two is a fear of appearing naive. 
Fear that God isn't good, that gets in the way of us experiencing joy, and a fear of appearing naive, that gets in the way of us experiencing joy. Uh, so first of all, fear that God isn't good. Uh, I think so often we look at God's commands in Scripture for us, uh, and we look in the Scriptures and we maybe run into a couple that, that we don't like, or we don't understand, and, and we suddenly become sort of adolescent in our thinking, and we think that God's up there like some divine spoil sport just trying to keep us from having fun. Uh, I remember years ago, I was, I was flying down to Guatemala with some, some folks from my church uh, at the time, and we were going to explore a, a potential partnership with a, a village down there. And so, so I'm flying down there, and on the way, I sat next to a, a rather unique man on the plane who we'll call Chuck because I don't remember his name. And uh, during the flight, uh, Chuck and I had, had quite, uh, we talked quite a bit, and he shared with me that he was going down to Guatemala uh, because he was going to see if it'd be a good place for him to retire. And then he asked me why I was going, and I told him, well, I'm going with a, a group from church to check out a potential partnership uh, with this, this village uh, down in Guatemala. And he said, oh, that's, that's a good thing, I suppose. And I said, yeah, I guess so, thanks. Uh, and then, uh, but then he got this big smile on his face. And he goes, he looked at me as a younger man then, uh, no. uh, and uh, he looked at me and he said, but uh, I bet because you're going with the church, they want you to follow a lot of rules, right? <laughs> and I was like, you know, he didn't know I was the pastor on the trip. I was like, uh, like I'm the they. Uh, so, uh, but I looked at him and I'm like, I, I guess, you know, I said, I'm not, I'm not really sure what you mean. And he said, I mean, you can't just go down there and, you know, get wild and party it up. So they, they probably want you to behave a certain way. And to be honest, I don't remember how I responded to that because it's just weird. Uh, <laughs> But I remember how much it bugged me that, that this dude thought that, that somehow that the Christian life was, was about following a list of rules that are imposed upon me by some group of people or by God. When the reality is this, that God's the one who's designed this world. He's the one who knows best how it works. And so it's absolutely to our benefit to live in line with his will and with his commands. Like, I still remember that trip. I still have friends from that mountain village in Guatemala that we started a partnership with. I remember playing soccer with those kids. I remember doing uh, dental clinics and seeing people come to faith in Jesus. I remember us throwing parties and having festivals in this little community. And I compare that to what Chuck thought I was missing out on. So, oh, I didn't do a beer bong. Like, it's just stupid. Like, it's not even close. It's just absurd. And see, I think if we just got over our fear that God's will is good, and that living in line with his commands actually produces joy, even when it's hard. I'm like, I want you to think about this. Do we grasp that, that God made the universe with joy? God made everything we see with joy. That God is the happiest being in the cosmos. God's the happiest being in the cosmos. That his will for us is joy. Do we believe that? Do we believe that he created in joy? See, I... I like thinking about creation because I, I minister to a bunch of engineering students and a bunch of engineers. And no offense to any engineers in the room, okay? But the stereotype of the stoic engineer is just so true, okay? And I think sometimes we think that's how God created things. That when God was created, he's just like, okay, well, here's where the land will go, and now the sea, and uh, here's a dog, and, uh, <laughs> and a cat, all right, devil, you can have one creature, but that is it. And uh, you, you know, like we just have this, this sort of impression of, of this, this sort of stoic creation of everything. But there's actually this, this moment in the book of Job where we get a glimpse into what it was really like as God's going about his creative work. 
Job 38, God's speaking to Job and he says this, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set or who laid its cornerstone? And the engineer's like, well, see, there's measuring. Okay, yes, you're right. <laughs> but, but what's going on while God is doing this? Look at verse 7. God's creating, while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. And so what's the soundtrack to creation? It's the angels going, here he goes again, here he goes again, right? It's the angels going, yes, he's doing it, yes, more of that, more of that. That's what's going on. They're shouting in joy. God creates in joy. His will for us is joy. And so let's not be afraid of that, but trust that living into his will will produce joy in us. The second fear that steals joy is appearing naive. It's appearing naive. Uh, so this is the seventh time uh, I've gotten to speak at a family week at Camp Arcadia. Uh, and I just looked back over my old notes from the past seven times of speaking up here. And without fail, uh, I quote the late novelist David Foster Wallace every single time. Uh, in fact, uh, last year I did an entire lecture on him. So you're bummed you missed that one, I know. But uh, at any rate, uh, and so here we are in the last day of lectures, and I have not quoted my boy once. Fear not, Max. Fear not. Fear not. Because here it is. Uh, some years ago, uh, David Foster Wallace was being interviewed by Charlie Rose. Uh, and in this interview, he, he shared his concern over the effects postmodernism was having on literature and TV and film and the fine arts. And he said it really boils down. His concern is that so much of the art we're creating in our world right now is becoming so ironic and so cynical and so deconstructive uh, that, that we're missing something. We're, not, we're just constantly in this state of deconstruction. He says this, what passes for hip, cynical transcendence of sentiment is really some kind of fear of being really human. Since to be really human is probably to be unavoidably sentimental and naive and goo-prone and generally pathetic. See, we, we have this fear of, of living into joy, of pursuing joy, because we don't want to look naive or unrealistic or uneducated, that, that we don't know that life is hard and that there's people in this world that are oppressed and that there's suffering. And so, so we have this fear of joy. We have this fear because we don't want to look naive. And so we live in this time in which any art that dares to hope, that dares to be joyful, is considered inferior art. Right? I mean, just think of, just, just watch Breaking Bad. Watch It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Watch Arrested Development. Watch Game of Thrones. My goodness, watch Black Mirror. Spoiler alert, it always ends bad. Right? In other words, we live in this time where it's easy and it's celebrated to be cynical and to deconstruct everything and to own the suffering of the world. And of course, there's a place for that. There's a place for that. But it's made it so that to actually reconstruct something, to actually be fully human, to actually pursue something joyful in our world, well, that's kind of naive. It's kind of childish. That's unrealistic. Let's get real. And don't get me wrong, I love all those shows I listed. But here's the truth, they're not compatible with ultimate reality. Because ultimate reality says that Jesus rose from the dead. It says that death doesn't have the final say. It says that hope wins, it says that love wins, that life wins, that God wins. It says that our ending is a happy one. Uh, in his famous essay on fairy stories, 
Uh, the genius behind the Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien, explained why it's so important uh, through explaining his concept of eucatastrophe, or a happy ending in the face of sorrow. That's a eucatastrophe, happy ending in the face of sorrow. He writes this, The joy of the happy ending is not essentially escapist, nor fugitive. It does not deny the existence of discatastrophe, of sorrow and failure, the, possibilities of the, the possibility of these is necessary to the joy of deliverance, eucatastrophe. It denies, in the face of much evidence, if you will, universal final defeat. And insofar is evangelium, or gospel, good news, giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. When the sudden turn comes, we get a piercing glimpse of joy and heart's desire that for a moment passes outside the frame, rends indeed the very web of story, and lets a gleam come through. See, in the resurrection, Jesus says the story of this world is not catastrophe. It's a eucatastrophe. It's deliverance and hope and joy in the face of darkness. It's a joy from beyond the walls of the world. As friends, this is our opportunity to live into this joy, to foolishly believe that ultimate reality is resurrection and redemption and restoration. Let me pause again real quick before we close up. Uh, any questions, comments, concerns, anecdotes, hilarious jokes? Right. So there's the, the critique, right? Uh, Christians are so heavenly focused that they're no earthly good. Um, and, and frankly, that actually comes from misunderstanding of where we're headed, right? And so... Um, so heaven in the idea of us floating around as souls playing harps, just not really where we're headed. Uh, where we're headed actually is the resurrection of the dead. Where we're headed is Revelation 21 is heaven redeeming and restoring all of earth, is redeeming and restoring and setting creation the way it's supposed to be. Uh, and so what we get to do, and Jesus has already launched that work uh, when he came and was resurrected and launched the kingdom of God. And so what we get to do is we actually lean into the future reality of this place. We lean into that. And so what that means then is we're all the more passionate about pursuing justice and about caring for those in need and about loving our brothers and sisters in Christ and about learning to, to reach across culturally to those that are different from us because that's our future. So we got to get used to it. Right? Like that's, so, so that's the idea is we're, we're headed towards that future. So it actually, when we get that hope in mind, it should lead us to leave that much more deeply into this world and that much more deeply into the struggles of this world. Yes. Uh, Lynn, and then we'll do it back there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So are there tips on folks who maybe just live in this state and this, this joy I'm proposing, this reconstruction I'm proposing, they say, listen, man, whatever, just burn it all. Who cares? Uh, right. Uh, First of all, I'll just have them hang out with me. I will be more cynical than them, I promise. Uh, but, uh, do you do road trips? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I just skip. Oh, man. All right, well, I don't have time for this. Okay, move in, Gabe. Uh, so uh, tips for, for how to engage folks who are maybe in that place. Um, I think, you know, one, one of the obvious ones, right, is it's going to come from the lives that we live. And, and I mean, I know you, and I'm sure you're living a wonderful life, Lynn, of following Jesus and showing what that looks like. But I just, I think back to... Uh, you know, I have I, one of the, the families I talked about, Empty Nesters, where I did a series on, on generous justice, and I went through God's, uh, God's justice in Scripture and his, his heart for the poor and what, what's called the, his preferential option for the poor. And so I, like, teach on this, and, and our church is really involved in a bunch of stuff, caring for people in need in our community. And so one of our Empty Nester couples sent it to their kid who's out in California who's kind of just, you know, said, I'm done with church. But they're like, you know, he cares for people, he loves people, right? it's kind of that thing. So they send a sermon to him, and he's like, 
listen, I won't listen to this until I start seeing you guys doing it. And, and so it's like pretty harsh, but he's not wrong. Uh, I actually know those folks. I'm like, yeah, you guys need to get on it. So, so, um, so it's like, so there is that place in which as we start to embody what it looks like to follow Jesus, there's a way in which that's hopefully attractive. And if not, at least we're being faithful to Jesus. But uh, then secondly, I think it's, what's what I'm putting? Actually, I'll get to it in a second here. Because uh, my main answer is this, what else is there? Uh, which sounds a little jaded, but I think it actually leads to joy is what else. So let me get to that in a second here. So yeah, thank you. Yes. Oh, sure. So that, well, maybe, I don't know. I don't know that for sure. Uh, but the idea is, is not that we create it. It's that God creates that. Jesus creates that. He's doing all the heavy lifting. But as we look towards that, uh, we, it's, my boy N.T. Wright, theologian, puts it like this. He says, it's like God is building this cathedral, and he's going to be the one that builds it. He's the, one, he's the architect. He's the one doing the cathedral. But in the meantime, as he's building this cathedral, putting it together, he's given you a stone. And he just says, hey, I want you to work on that stone. I don't know how that stone's going to fit in. It, it may be like a pebble that someone walks on as they walk to this cathedral. I have no idea. But I know he's given me this stone, and I know that ultimately it's going to be a part of this thing that God's doing. So it's not that I'm building it. It's that God's doing it. He's making it happen. But he invites me to live into that process, to lean into that process. So it's not about us accomplishing anything. It's about looking to the hope that he is going to get it all done, and we lean into that uh, with active anticipation. So... Yeah, so there's a discussion on this row up here, just for those of you in the back, uh, where, where they're talking about in a, in, a, in a world where, like, man, we hear about all the pain and struggle in the world, and we, do, oh, we don't know what to do. A good first step is loving the people that are right in front of us and caring for the people that are right in our own block, in our own family. Yeah, cool, cool. Awesome. All right. Uh, let me just kind of close where I want to drive home this idea of, like, what, what, why do we actually, actually, should we be pursuing this idea of finding our joy in the Lord? Because it is so easy to get jaded about church. It's so easy to get jaded uh, about our culture. So easy to get jaded about your life. And so I want to submit to you that we, that just means we have to pursue joy that much harder. And because here's the thing is, what else is there? And that's me as the witness is what else is there? Like I, I could and almost did regale you with quote after quote of famous person who got everything they ever wanted in life. And it wasn't enough. Or, I mean, if you're bored this afternoon, you can Google it in your room so no one sees you. Uh, uh, Lady Gaga, Elon Musk, Russell Brand, Jim Carrey, the creator of Mar- Minecraft, Marcus Person. Uh, Google what they said if you want. Again, again, every person who reaches the pinnacle of whatever they were aiming towards says, I got here and it wasn't enough. There's still this deep ache in my soul. And so it leaves us with this question, what else is there then? Uh, the great Southern writer of the 20th century, uh, Walker Percy, who brought us novels like The Moviegoer and Lost in the Cosmos, published a self-interview in Esquire magazine in December of 1977 titled Questions They Never Asked Me. Uh, and in this pointed and really quite grumpy interview of himself, with himself, uh, he, uh, he comments on literature, on the South, on the political conversations of his day. But towards the end of the interview, uh, he asks himself questions about his faith. Uh, and he confirms to himself that he does indeed believe in the gospel. But he presses the point on himself. And so I'm going to read part of the interview to you. It's a little bit weird how I'm going to have to do it, but you're all very smart. You can keep up, all right? Uh, so the first question he asks himself after confirming his belief in the gospel. Question. How is such a belief possible in this day and age? Answer. What else is there? Question. What do you mean, what else is there? There is humanism, atheism, agnosticism, Marxism, behavioralism, materialism, Buddhism, Mohammedism, Sufism, astrology, occultism, theosophy. Answer. 
That's what I mean. Question, I don't understand. Would you exclude, for example, scientific humanism as a rational and honorable alternative? Answer, yes. Question, why? It's not good enough. Question, why not? Answer, have it printed for you there. This life is too much trouble. It's far too strange to arrive at the end of it and then to be asked what you make of it and have to answer scientific humanism. That won't do. A poor show. Life is a mystery. Love is a delight. Therefore, I take it as axiomatic that one should settle for nothing less than the infinite mystery and the infinite delight, i.e. God. In fact, I demand it. I refuse to settle for anything less. I don't see why anyone should settle for less than Jacob, who actually grabbed a holt of God and would not let go until God identified him and blessed him. I love how Percy puts it, right? He says, I refuse to settle for anything less than to grab, and he says, a holt of God. He says that's a Louisiana thing. Uh, to, to grab a hold of God and not let go. See, friends, that's where the joy is. is to grab a hold of God and not let go. I'll just tell you about uh, my friend Chelsea. Uh, I got to, to baptize her uh, this past December. Uh, and she's uh, 22 years old. Uh, she's originally from China, was, was born there, uh, and didn't grow up in the church at all. Uh, but she, she came over to the U.S. to study at the University of Michigan, uh, and she started dating this kid, Charlie, who's a, a member at my church. And so he, he brought her to church, and she came to church with them every Sunday uh, for 18 months. He even graduated partway through that, and she just kept coming to church by herself. Uh, and I'm up there preaching, doing my shtick, you know, I'm like doing everything I can, trying to be persuasive and winsome with the gospel and doing everything I had for, for a year and a half. And her and I would get coffee and I'd be like, hey, Chelsea, you know, how you doing? Where are you at? She's like, oh man, I love the church, very nice people, but just like, I just don't get it. I just, I'm not with it. Like, I, under, I understand what you're saying, but like, it's, it's just not sinking in for me. I just don't get it. And I was like, okay, you know, that's fine. But she's like, I like the people, so I'll keep coming. And then one day, uh, this past summer, it's actually right after I spoke up here. Uh, as she was leaving worship, she's leaving worship, and she just has this big, stupid grin on her face. She's just super smiling. I was like, Chelsea, what's up? And she's like, I get it now. I get it now. She's like, I, I believe in Jesus. I, I believe in the gospel. I understand how it works. I know that God loves me. I know that he forgives me. I know that Jesus is with me. I just, I, I believe it. And I was, I was so stoked when she said that. And, and I thought to myself, I was like, oh, Gabe, you've done it, buddy. You've done it. It must have been something brilliant you set up there. Way to go. Uh, your dad is finally proud of you. You no longer have to go to therapy. Like, you have done it. That is not what happened at all. Instead, she said, this is what happened. She goes, I, I went for a run this week. And while I was doing that, a uh, predominantly Chinese church was, was having a cookout. And they invited me to join them. And I did, and, and while I did, while I ate with them, a man shared the gospel with me in Mandarin, and it just hit me then. She said, and now I believe in Jesus. And she said, Pastor Gabe, I'm just, I'm so happy. I'm so happy, I don't, I don't know what to do. I see, friends, the good news is still good news. And I think sometimes those of us who've maybe been Christians for a while, who've been in the game for too long, we've been hurt by people, we've seen the underbelly of the church, I think what can happen is we can get jaded and we can get cynical we need to be reminded of the joy that is ours in Christ. And so it's possible that maybe some of you are missing out on this foolish joy. Uh, there's a book out right now called The Power of Moments uh, by a guy named Dan Heath. 
And this book is about the, what's that? And Chip Heath, you're right. So sorry. So sorry. Yeah, I know you chips stick together. It's not enough of you in the world. Okay. Dan and Chip Heath. Uh, yeah, that's why authors fight over whose name is first. So uh, it's true. Okay, so um, at any rate, and it's, uh, the book's about the psychology of how to build moments that, that last a lifetime. Uh, and in it, there's this brilliant line uh, that it, it talks about uh, how when you get ready to celebrate, when you get ready to experience joy, when you, when you get ready for, for something just, just to be overwhelmed with joy, there's always some resistance and cynicism. There will always be resistance and cynicism to that. And so they say this, this is the line. Beware the soul-sucking voice of reasonableness. It's a good line. Beware the soul-sucking voice of reasonableness. So friends, let me remind you. Beware the soul-sucking voice of reasonableness. Because here's the deal. God's love is not reasonable. God's grace is not reasonable. His love is lavish. His grace in Christ Jesus is over the top. It's absurd. It's foolish. And so beware the soul-sucking voice of reasonableness, and instead, with joy, remember the goodness of God to you. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for this time. That teaches us to be a people of joy, to be overwhelmed by the love you have for us, to be overwhelmed by your goodness to us, to be overwhelmed by the fact that we know the end of the story and that everything is going to be okay. Teach us to extend that joy uh, to a world that is hurting. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to Arcadia Cast. Brought to you by Camp Arcadia, a Lutheran family resort and retreat center on the shores of beautiful Lake Michigan. For more episodes or to learn more about camp, please visit www.camp-arcadia.com.